Good morning. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 41 today. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up, by the seven, swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dreams I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they'd eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven, seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. 
The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the, in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This is the word of the Lord. We've been privileged to work our way through the book of Genesis, and um, in particular over the last couple of months, the story of Joseph. And uh, it's a story... Again, I, hate, I always hate giving you spoilers, but by this point, hopefully you're familiar enough with it that I won't be ruining things too badly to tell you that this story is all about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, uh, which is his absolute rule over every meticulous detail uh, to bring about his promises and to bring about all of his purposes. This will be the, the climax at the very end of the book, but by God's grace, we get to see it all the way along. And so not only is this story a story about sovereignty and about providence, but this sermon is going to be about the sovereignty of God. The title that we've gave, given to it is Dreams and Determinism. And uh, if you've been around Grace Baptist Church for any amount of time, you'll know that this is uh, one of the attributes of God that we take great joy in, delight in, take, derive great comfort from. The fact that we uh, serve a God who is truly God, who sits on the throne and ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And even in the songs that we've sung, we have testified to the fact that every, everything is in the Lord's hands and is happening according to his purpose. Genesis chapter 41 uh, helps us see some of these great truths in very uh, clear focus. And Pharaoh's dreams help us to understand something about the doctrine of determinism, if you want a fancy word for it. Uh, the doctrine of sovereignty and providence. And I don't really have a, a fancy introduction here. Uh, what the good stuff is, is the meat of the chapter. And so I want to just dive right into that. And I uh, am excited to show you four different things in the passage, four different aspects of the sovereignty of God and um, the the blessing it is and the comfort that it is. I want us to see, if you're taking notes, you can jot down these four points as headers uh, that we can use to work our way through the text. I want to show you first sovereignty and relativity. Sovereignty and relativity. Sovereignty and rescue. Sovereignty and rule. And then sovereignty and responsibility. 
relativity, rescue, rule, responsibility. Let's look first at sovereignty and relativity. It was uh, over 100 years ago now that Albert Einstein proposed his general theory of relativity. But man, it feels like yesterday. If you got that joke, that means you're a complete nerd. That's a nerd joke, okay? I don't know if you've ever studied Einstein's uh, theory, uh, but if not, what can I say? It's about time. That's another nerd joke. You're identifying yourselves. No, really, it's about time. Uh, Einstein postulated that time is relative, that the rate at which time is measured depends on your frame of reference. And you might be relieved to know that I'm not going to, like, at this point, delve into a discussion of physics. I'm not really interested in the idea of relativity as it pertains to physics, but I am eager to, th to just press into the idea of relativity in the spiritual realm. For example, I want you to consider that, spiritually speaking, time is rel relative. Um, time measures differently depending on whether you have a heavenly perspective or an earthbound one. Depending on whether you are standing in eternity or whether you are smack dab in the middle of some trial or suffering. Time is experienced differently. And consider our friend Joseph. Uh, when we left him last week, he was... He was in that same prison that he's been for something like 10 or 11 years. Yes, he's got lots of responsibility, has favor with the, the higher-ups. But at the same time, he's in fetters and he is in chains. He's experiencing prolonged pain and suffering. He is eager to be, quote, let out of this house. We heard his desire there back in chapter 40, verse 14. He's eager to be released from this suffering. And here recently, there's cause for hope because the cupbearer was able to get out. And the cupbearer was restored to the service of Pharaoh. And when Joseph, you'll remember when he was explaining his dreams to him ahead of time, giving him this favorable outcome from the Lord about what was going to happen to him, about his restoration, jo Joseph made one simple request to his new friend. He, he asked simply that he would put in a good word for him with Pharaoh so that he could also be released from prison. And when I think we left chapter 40 last week um, hopeful, you know, expecting that the cupbearer would be so thankful with uh, his good turn of fortune and so grateful to Joseph for the role that he played, ultimately that the cupbearer would be so aware of and thankful to the Lord for his blessing that he would willingly and quickly do all he could do to restore Joseph's release. Instead, when we come to verse 1 of chapter 41, we are told that, quote, two whole years have elapsed between that time and now. 
And you add this with the language from the previous chapter, you know, the language of sometime later, and then sometime later still, and you come up with a total of something like 13 years that Joseph is languishing in prison, falsely accused, unjustly treated, in pain and in agony. You have to believe that Joseph experienced what Einstein called time dilation. You know, that the, the clock seemed like it was uh, slowing right down to a crawl. And that it felt like forever ago that he was, you know, fleeing that floozy. I, w I wonder if you've experienced that same spiritual phenomenon. In, in the midst of your suffering, have you felt like the days were weeks and, and the months were years? Have you ever cried out, how long, O Lord? We need to learn what Joseph came to understand, which is that, Time is measured differently from an eternal frame of reference. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some would consider slow and count slowness. You know, when it comes to Suffering and sanctification, we, we tend to think about it the same way that a busy mom thinks about supper. Okay, we, we want something quick and easy to prepare. You know, maybe a frozen pizza or, you know, something that can be nuked. And if it needs to be a little fancier, then we'd love to just be able to throw some ingredients into the Instant Pot and have a finished product 20 minutes later. I've noticed that men, on the rare occasions that they're responsible for the cooking, I noticed that men prefer to cook something that takes many hours, sometimes a whole day. You know, whether it's a pork butt or a brisket, it, it works best when you take your time um, and you see these guys, we've got a number of them in our church. You see these guys tending the smoker all day long, checking temperatures, uh, basting, rubbing, you know, soaking chips, changing out chips. I don't even know the extent of what they, they do, but they're always tinkering. And the rest of us are constantly hounding them. How long, Jason? Is it done yet? Is it, is it ready? When can we eat? And the answer is usually, not quite yet. Not quite yet. Just be patient. When it comes to our sanctification and suffering, the, the Lord clearly favors the, the big green egg approach rather than the Instapot. So, so we would do well to learn to be patient. And to learn what Joseph, no doubt, came to understand, which is that the Lord's timing, while it might be frustrating and painful at the time, his timing is always perfect. And that's not just a trite, spiritual little phrase to say. The sovereignty of God guarantees that the Lord's timing is absolutely perfect. Think about it. If the cupbearer had done what he was supposed to do, 
when he was supposed to do it, if he had put in a good word for Joseph as soon as he was released and restored, it probably wouldn't have meant anything to Pharaoh at the time. It would have been very easy for him to ignore. After all, he had just done the cupbearer a favor. He doesn't owe the cupbearer anything. And what does he care about this foreigner that the cupbearer is mentioning? It's not, it wasn't the right time. But now, two whole years later, and Pharaoh is ready to hear about uh, this Hebrew guy in prison who can accurately interpret dreams. I'm saying that the timing of our sovereign God is always perfect. Elizabeth Elliot was very helpful on this point, and she wrote, To love God is to love his will. It is to wait quietly for life to be measured by one who knows us through and through. It is to be content with his timing and his wise appointment. Brothers and sisters, even though it's way slower, let's learn to measure time from an eternal frame of reference. Not only is time relative, but we see in this text that wisdom is relative as well. You know, central to this passage, of course, are the dreams of Pharaoh. And one night he, he tossed and turned all night, and it wasn't just, you know, the falafels that he had for dinner. It was because the sovereign Lord of the universe was revealing something to him in the form of, of dreams. The first dream featured uh, seven cows, attractive and plump, coming up from the Nile River. And even in these details, you can, you can see how accurate the Bible is. Okay, Because what would happen is that cows would uh, prefer to almost fully submerge themselves in the waters of, of the Nile River to protect themselves from bugs and from the heat. So they, they actually would come up out of the Nile and feed on the reeds that grew in the northern part of the river that were on the banks. And then, and then we learn that um, in this dream, seven other cows come, and these ones are scrawny and nasty. They come up out of the Nile, and they ate the seven plump cows. It's a horrifying image. And it, you can tell that it rattled Pharaoh. It startled him and uh, woke him up in a cold sweat and left him tossing and turning. And finally, he falls back to sleep, and this time he dreamt that seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing from one stalk. Later, on another stalk, seven ears of grain grew up that were sparse, and they were spotted from you know, the harmful um, warm winds that would blow in. So these seven skimpy ears from the scorched stalk ate up the seven ears that were plump and good. And that too caused Pharaoh a lot of distress and it woke him up again in a cold sweat. And he was relieved that it was a dream because if that was happening in real life, whoa. 
But, but this is hardly consolation because it was commonly understood in, in that time and in that place that when kings dreamed dreams, that, that's, that's a major thing. That, that's not an incidental nightly thing. It, and these were understood to be uh, portents of the, of the future uh, for good or for ill. It, w- it was thought that the, the gods were communicating to these kings. So obviously what would happen is that Pharaoh would, would throw a lot of resources the next morning at trying to figure out what these dreams meant. And as we saw last week, Egypt at this time um, really has a whole industry of, of people uh, who are competent in this trade, in this art, uh, they're, they're dealing with magic. They're considered, it's a sort of priestly caste of people who consulted the gods and who resorted to all of the textbooks and the magic arts to determine what any given dream would mean. So right away, Pharaoh calls in, in the wise men to help him figure out what these two dreams were revealing to him. You can see from verse 8 that Pharaoh went really deep into the roster, if we could put it that way. Notice that it says he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. These, these are, what he assembled was all of the smartest and most skilled people in the land. Every last expert in Egypt was summoned, and Pharaoh told them his dreams. But here's the result. Look at the text. There was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Did you catch that? That, That's a powerful statement. You assemble all of the wisest people of the land, and what do you get? Nothing. Nothing at all. All it amounts to is a big fat zero. Wisdom is relative. The Bible talks about an earthly kind of wisdom, the wisdom of man, and it talks about a wisdom from above. This is the the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 25 says, and I'm I'll paraphrase this here. God on his dumbest day is wiser than man on his smartest day. And the two are not even worth comparing. It goes on to say, where, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the magician, we might add? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, made, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And our passage makes this point powerfully. As all of the wisest men in Egypt, they're all mystified as to the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams. It turns out there's only one man in the whole land that has access to heavenly wisdom. Just like it might be the case that in your circle of friends, at your workplace, in in your extended family, it might be the case that there's just one person who has access to the wisdom that comes from above. 
There's only one person that can reliably speak the truth of, of God. Over against all of your family or your coworkers' vain philosophy and pop psychology, all, over against all of their empty platitudes and the junk that they just um, parrot that they've seen from a meme or something, you have the great privilege and responsibility of speaking truth in love and in wisdom. The one man in Egypt who has access to that kind of heavenly wisdom is currently in the clink. That's the problem here. And Pharaoh's crisis is sparking a long-buried memory in the cupbearer. And in verse 19, we are treated to his, his uh, light bulb moment. He says to Pharaoh, I remember when I was in, in the big house, you know, doing time for my offenses against you. I'm, I'm paraphrasing again. There was this young Hebrew guy. He was in there with us. He was a servant of the captain of the guard. And he interpreted our dreams to us. The two of us that were in there, we had dreams the same night. And he interpreted them. And he, here's the thing. He was 100% accurate. Things turned out exactly as he said, as sure as I'm standing here before you today. And this brings us to our second heading. Let's consider sovereignty and rescue. Sovereignty and rescue. Under this point, I want to focus really just on one verse, which is verse 14. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when, they, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Well, if um, before, up until this point, time was dilating for Joseph, well, now it is rapidly contracting. And you'll notice that things in, in verse 14 uh, are moving at ludicrous speed. Okay, so from, from one frame of reference, this shows you something of Pharaoh's desperation to get to the bottom of things. He's, he's wasting no time at all. He believes the cupbearer's report, and all of his hopes for understanding his dreams are now focused in on this one, this one lead, this young Hebrew. So Joseph must be released from prison and brought to Pharaoh as quickly as possible. But not too quickly. It's important, you know, when you stand before the, the king that you don't look like a, a bum. You don't look like a vagabond. You know, life in prison is tough, so they've told me. And uh, it typically shows. Over, over the last decade, Joseph probably started to look like Chuck Nolan, you know, Tom Hanks' character in Castaway. And that might be an appealing look to you, you know, especially if you're a millennial. Um, but as far as the Egyptians were concerned, uh, it's nasty. It's nasty to look like that. Uh, Egyptians thought you looked like a... Uh, I, I remember, same with South Americans. I remember one time that our sister Monica 
uh, saw me with, you know, just scruff, you know, like a two day old beard or something. She was, she was shocked um, because the only time she saw that in uh, South America was when the person was like really sick. <laughs> well, this is what it's like for the Egyptians. You know, if you're if you're looking all nasty, they're they're thinking something's really wrong with you. So it's it's necessary for Joseph to have a haircut and get a shave and a shower to get out of his orange jumpsuit, you know, because he's going to have an audience with the king. Now, I don't want to allegorize or over spiritualize this text. But, you know, with this idea of washing in, in, in the phrase, even just the phrase, he was brought out of the pit. I just can't help but think that the narrator is, is painting a picture for us of salvation. And that, that's the ultimate rescue, you understand, to be delivered out of the pit of sin and to be washed and to be given a new set of clothes, even the righteous garments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to stand before the king. I can't help but think that this is just a really neat picture of what happens to a sinner who is transformed by the grace of God, which is an operation of the sovereignty of God. Our God is sovereign in the rescue. And whether we're talking about being rescued from the pit literally or spiritually, the point is that God is sovereign over it. He, he, your rescue is his doing all the way. In his own defense, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 recounts some of the highlights of Israel's history. And, and regarding this portion of scripture, Stephen testifies to this. He says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what Stephen's saying, he's distilling all of this down to its most important point. He's, full, he's inspired by the Spirit. The Spirit is powerfully upon him at this point. And he helps, helps us to understand the whole point of this passage, which is that the Lord God is sovereign throughout all of this, not least in Joseph's rescue from affliction. And, and we must understand the same thing, that if we are to ever experience salvation, whether from our sins or from our present suffering, from beginning to end, it will be the work of a sovereign God. It will be done on our behalf. It will be at his initiation. It will be in his time, on his terms, at his beck, on his call, for his glory. He, we sing, he alone can rescue. He alone can save. He alone can lift us from the grave. He came down to find us, led us out of death. To him alone belongs the highest praise. We have much to be thankful for. And we are grateful that the Lord has done this in our lives. And we look 
And, and we beg of him, we plead of him, we pray regularly that he would continue this great work of salvation, that he would be the one to act in the lives of our children and young people and those who come week by week and are among us but have yet to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're putting all of our hope and trust in the fact that we serve a God who is sovereign and who has the hearts of rebellious people in his hands. Let's consider in the third place, sovereignty and rule. Sovereignty and rule. Now when we say that God rules, really we're getting to the very heart of what it means that God is sovereign. I realize I've been using the word this whole time without actually defining it, but I'll give you a definition. I think the best one comes from uh, the late A.W. Pink, who wrote a book on this topic, and he writes this. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say, what are you doing? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels. That God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as it pleases him. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. This is the God that we worship. Scripture uniformly describes him as the one who rules supreme. And yet we so often suffer under the delusion that other people are in charge. Or that we actually rule. I know we would never speak of it in that, those terms, but we think it and we act as if it's true. We act as if we are in control, in the center of the universe. For example, in that time and culture, the pharaoh was viewed as a sort of god. He was someone who, because of his exalted position, was almost on the plane of divinity in the minds of many people. But that is, let's be honest, that is too much for a mere human to bear. In this chapter, I think, you get a, I think we get a feel for how vulnerable Pharaoh actually is. You know, his, his dreams and the elusive meanings of these dreams, it's very unsettling to him, you get the impression. In verse 8, we read that Pharaoh's spirit is, is troubled. And how much more so when all of his professional dream unweavers, to coin a phrase, when they all, you know, are shrugging their shoulders. Be being troubled in spirit is actually a very rational human reaction to understanding that you are in way over your head. Listen, man, 
President Biden is not in charge. And I, I, know you, I know you know that, but not for the reasons that you probably think. It's not because he has some pretty significant cognitive challenges. It's because he's a mere mortal. And I'm not being partisan. Trump wasn't in charge. Putin is not supreme. Zelensky is not at the controls of the universe. God is. The king's heart, we read in Proverbs 21, is in God's hands. And he directs it like a water course, wherever he pleases. Neither is, is Joseph in charge. Pharaoh says to him in verse 15, Rumor has it that, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph almost bowls him over, setting the record straight. He says, it's not in me, which in the original language is actually one word. It takes a bunch more words than that for us to translate it. But in the original, Joseph's like quickly blurting out one word that's saying, no, not me. It, it's a horrifying thought for Joseph that anyone would misunderstand and think that he has the power and the ability. No, Joseph, as we've seen in the past, is very, very adamant that the Lord gets all of the glory because the Lord is actually the one in charge. And he explains to Pharaoh, it's going to be God that gives you a favorable answer. And Pharaoh... Understand what I mean by God. When I say God, I'm not using a small g. I understand like hieroglyphics or whatever, but imagine he's speaking English and Pharaoh, I'm not talking about a small g. The word he actually uses here is the God, big G. I'm talking about the supreme God of the universe. That's who you're dealing with. And that's who has the power to give you the wisdom that you seek, not me. It's, it's a reminder of who is truly in charge, despite all appearances. In charge not just of the dreams and the interpretation, but who is actually running the whole universe. He's in charge of all of the events that will unfold from these dreams and interpretations. He's the God who sends the, uh, the blight and the... Sirocco, you know, the warm winds coming out of the east that will devastate the crops. This is the God who is sovereign over all of that. This is the God who rules Pharaoh. So Pharaoh tells his dreams and he adds a few details that the narrator leaves out on the first telling. It turns out these scrawny cows are the ugliest cows that Pharaoh has ever seen. And their feasting on the fat cows had no discernible effect on them whatsoever. It's not like they gained the weight from eating all of that meat. No, they remained as ugly and scrawny as they were at first. Details which, you know, Joseph helps him understand are actually mean something. It, the Lord, you, you see, gives Joseph the interpretation immediately. As in the previous chapter, in the previous dreams, the numbers are timestamps. The seven means seven years. 
Seven fat cows and ripe ears means seven years of bumper crops. Seven scrawny cows, seven sparse ears means seven years of famine. A famine so severe that people aren't even going to remember the bumper crop. It was going to be nearly impossible for these Egyptians to remember a time before the pandemic. And the doubling, the, du- the fact that there were two dreams with similar themes indicated, Joseph explains, that the thing is fixed by God and that God will shortly bring it about. And the point is very clear. Pharaoh is not in charge. God is the sovereign. He's the ruler. And times and life and death and harvest and family and disease, everything is fixed by him. He is ordaining and orchestrating all of these things down to the most meticulous detail for the good of his people. Just just consider why all of this is happening. It's, it's, for, it's in fulfillment of the promises that God has made. It's, it's for the good of this nation that he is forming called Israel, who need to first be in Egypt for a time. So the Lord is sovereignly orchestrating all of these events for the good of his people and for the glory of Christ. Friends, that's, that's an important truth for us to know as, as everything around us has the appearance of spiraling out of control. I don't know if you're, as you make your way through the world, if you're feeling that right now, that that this is just a gong show, that this is just a disaster. COVID, international relations, a White House that calls a lid at like shortly after lunch every day, your marriage, your children, your sanctification. It might have the appearance of being a complete disaster, but you need to know that God rules and he's in absolute control and he is working everything out for your good and for his glory. Now let's look fourthly and finally and quickly at verses 33 to 36 and consider something about sovereignty and responsibility. We're not going to be able to to deal with this as much as we would like to, but I, I do want to just point out even this word that we've used in the title, determinism, that that is like a bad word. Uh, that that's a swear word for some people. It it brings to mind a lot of things that human beings are just naturally very uncomfortable with. When we talk about the sovereignty of God and how every meticulous detail is ordained by him. We, re- we react against that strongly because we want to be in control and we really prize our autonomy, our personal, our wills, our, our decision-making ability. We, we like to believe that we are, you know, captains and masters of our own fate We don't like the doctrine of election or predestination or determinism or sovereignty because 
we think that the result is that it'll turn us into just robots, you know? Like just just people that are automatically just doing whatever has been laid out for us to do. We think, we imagine that it just destroys our any kind of personal responsibility. But I do want you to just understand that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both affirmed in scripture. And there is no there is no contradiction between the two of them. However mysterious that is for us to work out, we have to know that if if holy scripture puts these two truths side by side for us to believe, then then they are uh, both true. And if you were to ask Charles Spurgeon how he reconciles sovereignty and responsibility, he would say, my dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. Do you see that these two truths are side by side in our passage even today? So what happens in verses 33 to 36? It's all, it's part of Joseph's speech, but it is a therefore. Joseph now turns to proposing what ought to be done by Pharaoh in light of these things that have been set down and determined by God. Pharaoh has a lot of responsibility to take on in light of the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. So God has been gracious to to share with him what he intends to do in his country. Again, you see just Pharaoh's powerlessness here. It's, he's, not, he's not at the controls. God is. But now it's, it's appropriate that Pharaoh, knowing that that will take place, needs to take some responsibility. And you see the wisdom of God imparted to Joseph that he, just on the spot, can come up with a wonderfully uh, wise and workable plan for what to do to prepare for the seven years of drought. And he, he, he suggests, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. And right there, we know from the text that there are no wise men. All of the wise men of Egypt are discovered to be unwise men. There, there, is, there does happen to be one wise man around, Pharaoh, but select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And then he suggests Pharaoh um, appoint overseers of the land. You've got you to set up a, a system of checks and balances, and this thing has to, has to flow properly. You wouldn't want any supply chain issues. You, know, you wouldn't want grain boats stuck at the ports. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth, a 20% tax, just temporary though, to, uh, to store up produce in the plentiful years. We, there, there's going to be extra so you, we can afford to save. This is a savings plan 
to save up the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt. So the land may not perish through the famine. This is a wonderful plan. We'll have to see if Pharaoh takes him up on it. And uh, to see that, I'll invite you to come back next week, Lord willing. But I do want you to just understand in closing this very important truth that God's sovereignty does not put an end to to human responsibility. It's the basis for it. It's the foundation for it. And and just think about this for a second in the case of um, missions and evangelism. You know, we are told to, uh, to go and make disciples of, of all nations. But the, the reason that we are told to do that and the, and the hope that we have for doing that is because of the sovereignty of God who has declared from the outset that he has a people for his praise from every tongue and tribe and people and language and nation. It, this thing is set and it, and it will happen soon. And that, far from being a deterrent to evangelism and missions, that's actually the impetus for it. That's, that's what makes you uh, leave the comfort of home and family and go into an inhospitable land in order to have the good news of the gospel on your lips because you know that you are preaching a, an effective word, a word that will accomplish the very thing that it was set out to accomplish by God himself. Friends, we serve an amazing God, a powerful God, and it falls to us to humble ourselves before this sovereign and to to exercise all of the human responsibility that comes from thankful hearts and loving adoration. This is what we see in the person of Joseph, and I pray that this is what we will go forth from this place today, being and doing and and acting, all for God's glory. Amen? Amen.